This week's episode of Uncomedy Running is brought to you by HBO on Amazon. Now, HBO, it's not TV. It's freaking HBO. You get unlimited access to addictive dramas, your Sopranos, hilarious comedies, your Veeps, movies, your your night schools eventually, right? It feels like every Kevin Hart movie is on HBO. Uh, and so much more, including Arliss. Remember that show Arliss? Uh that guy, uh, Robert Wool, plays a uh, sports agent, I want to say, in movie in a, in a TV show that's somehow both uh, ahead of its time and uh, old <laughs> and should not should never be viewed again. But HBO, they got the hits. They got the TV shows. You can start your seven-day free trial today at boardwalkaudio.com slash Amazon HBO. You can do a seven-day free trial then $14.99 a month after the trial. Wow. Uh, so, yeah. That's the ad. <laughs> this is a boardwalk audio podcast on comedy writing on comedy writing thanks for downloading this episode of on comedy writing the podcast about the business and craft of writing comedy i'm your host alan johnson i've got a great episode but first the best way to support the show is by going to board.com slash oncomedywriting. Click the Supporter Artist button, shop on Amazon like Arrywood, but get a little kickback. Our guest this week is Jubin Parang. Um, he went to law school, became a lawyer, started doing UCB stuff, and eventually got a job at The Daily Show. So it's a really interesting one, especially for all of you out there who are doing a day job that you don't love and, and you're thinking about thinking about making the step into comedy. Uh, quit it, baby. Quit the job. Um but yeah, interesting episode. Uh, yeah, so here is Jubin Prang. Jubin, thanks for coming to the show. Thanks, man. It's great to be here. Thanks uh, for having me. Where, where are you from originally? Uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, born and raised in uh, the South. Not many people know. Uh, I don't think many people up here know where Knoxville is. They know where Nashville is, but well, it's, not, it's about an hour away, right? Yeah, there you go. You, I, uh, you know it more than most people do. Well, I know because I'm I'm from Dallas, and so we... I, I oh, went to, yeah, you're a southern guy then. Yeah, yeah. So I went to school in Connecticut, and I drove a car up there, so I would drive uh, through Tennessee to get there. you go through I-40 or... Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then we'd stop in uh, either Knoxville or Nashville every time, depending on how far we wanted to go. Yeah, it's, we are... It's like halfway through. Yeah, that's good. That's a nice, uh, that's a nice thing our state's known for. Yeah. <laughs> our state's known for. <laughs> We're like our our big claim to fame is that we're the the University of Tennessee uh, campus, so we have the Tennessee Volunteers, which is you know the football team that has been atrocious for twenty years. But one day <laughs> we'll be good again. One day. Uh, did you like growing up in uh, in Knoxville? Yeah, it's a good like. I mean, it was a good suburban, you know, eighties, nineties, Southern living. Yeah, I think um, it's funny. I think like people our age generally are now rebelling against that kind of suburban. Uh, childhood they had by repopulating downtowns of all the cities in the country, which I also definitely prefer to having grown up in the suburbs, but it was a very nice, you know, safe, you roll your bicycle around everywhere and uh, walk to school. I didn't walk to school, but you could have walked to school, <laughs> but it was too far for me. I would rather just have my parents drive me to school. Yeah. It's interesting though, because like, uh, I, obviously I, I like living in, in the city more than the suburbs now. Yeah, but I mean, if I Dallas, was, that was that that is just a car town. There's that, just nothing but highways there. Right. right? Yeah. Although it's very suburban too. I mean, it's sure. like yeah, it's, it's 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 Dallas is like the littlest big city, I guess, which I think is the name of like Reno or that. something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that is true of Dallas, I think too. But if I was like um 
if I was like having a family or something, I, I think I definitely would want to live in the suburbs. You would? I think so. Yeah, I don't know. I I uh, struggle against that idea because I think that uh, I and and who knows? Maybe this is the, this is the kind of statement someone without kids can say. Right. But I don't necessarily know if you need more space to have a kid uh, than what the city provides. Um, and I might find out soon when, when I have a kid, if I, if I ever do, that that's, uh, that was the dumbest statement that you could possibly <laughs> have made. But I, I do think there is a little bit of a deadening uh, in your spirit when you move out to the suburbs. And I, I kind of want to resist that as much as possible, if not completely. And that feels maybe more true in New York, too, because it's so specifically different. Yeah, it might just be that, you know, the difference between living in Dallas or Knoxville as a city versus living in the suburbs is not the much of a gulf yeah. as between New York City and... You know, Westchester would be. Yeah, yeah. You really feel. I've been to that when I go out to like uh, visit various family or friends in Long Island or Westchester. The difference is, just, I mean, eight o'clock, the whole place is dead. You feel yeah. this. You feel the. You feel the lack of energy uh, almost more than you would feel the energy in New York. Maybe that's just because we're used to the energy of New York yeah. now. But it's definitely not something I want to make a regular part of my life. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Cut, cut to five years later. I've, I'm in the uh, suburbs. Right. I, you know, I <laughs> I've got six kids, and I can't even imagine living in the town. <laughs> Uh, were, were you interested in comedy at all growing up? Yeah, I think I was always really uh, into um, comedy shows, comedy uh, bits. I, I, like everybody probably of our generation, I watched Saturday Night Live late at night as much as I could. I watched The Simpsons, South Park, um, and I would talk about it with all my friends like the day after and just repeat the lines and quote it. Like it, middle school and high school humor is mostly just all like reference humor. You're just right. repeating what you just saw the night before. Um, and then in high school I did, uh, we had, we were one of the lucky schools in, in, uh, in my city that had an improv team. It was all short form, oh, yeah, who's yeah. line based, but that was the first time that I, um, did improv comedy and I really liked it and I was as good at it as you can be in high school without any kind of training or, right. or real having an experienced coach, uh, coach you on it. Um, but I think I was since, yeah, high school, middle mm-hmm. school, I've always been into comedy. Uh, you mentioned South Park, which uh, I I haven't seen South Park in years. I'm realizing now. Oh no, kidding! It's oh, been I a still while. watch every episode. I well, have a lot of loyalty towards those shows. I watch everything of Simpsons, South Park, Family yeah. Guy. What I mean, what do you think of South Park these days? I, I've I've only heard things which are, sound very strange and and maybe not that I would I wouldn't be into. I think, but I tell you, something, especially because like uh, as I've grown older, like my politics are are very opposed to South Park's politics to the extent they have like this. That kind of libertarian, right. uh, fuck you uh, mentality, or I should say more like who cares mentality, um, which is fine. I you know I, I don't agree with that, but I always thought the show was like very funny regardless. And a couple of years ago, they started uh, commenting on, uh, on the way the culture has changed so much since they started with a episode. They basically had a season, I think, three years ago. Where it was like member, Foods, member berries? Or, oh, no, this whole, is before that. Okay. It was when the Whole Foods moves into yeah, South yeah. Park and the whole town realized they need to like, adapt to the 21st century. Yeah. And it's, there's a lot of threads of, of commenting on woke culture and also commenting on their own place in American history and the, the stuff they've said and jokes they've made they couldn't make anymore. It was a very intelligent meta-commentary on what they, on what they mm-hmm. have been. And it was also really, really funny. It was the first time they've become like serialized since back in, you know, since the time they stopped killing Kenny off. Right. I, I, I think it's, it's kind of had a resurgence uh, that I've really, really liked. Interesting. I guess, I don't know, that's just one show that just fell off the wagon for me. I fell I'll off by the wayside. You, 
I mean, yeah. I mean, whatever. Like, I mean, yeah. there's so much comedy now that I... When I, if I, 10 years ago, I might have, like, tried to, like, argue with you on your taste, and now I'm just so indifferent to it. Anybody, like, have, like whatever you want, you know? Yeah. Believe whatever you want to believe. But I think that the good, the thing that South Park's comedy that appeals to me a lot, which is the same thing with Family Guy and shows like Always Sunny in Philadelphia, is that there is no sentimentality in them. They're very uh, heartless. There's just joke, 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 joke. Yeah. Um, and I really like that. I don't like my particular taste in comedy that I watch. I don't have, I don't want heart. I don't want special moments i just want jokes i just want as many jokes as possible which i think south park gives yeah that's true so i that it falls into my wheelhouse when mm-hmm. it comes to what i like to watch so i mean if you i mean watch another episode recently if you don't yeah, like it then you know i'm yeah i might short. i guess you know i remember I, I think i watched like one episode where they had the principal pc character yeah and i was like oh, all right i mean i mean maybe i was viewing it too much of like just like like this guy's just like i forget the episode but it, there was something it was about like safe space, and they did like a weird safe space song that I was like, "All right, I mean, yeah, this is yeah." Weird. They turned into a TV show. Or it became like a they had like a like a Suzanne Summers kind of yeah, ad. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, "This is like these are just two old guys getting angry about stuff." But maybe, but if I viewed it as like a whole as a series, the season as a whole, maybe I'd think it differently. Yeah, I mean, they also like yeah, they're also older guys who have like a suburban white guys mentality of, yeah, of yeah. what's funny, and so sometimes you just have to be like, "Well, I don't find that's funny," but or I don't necessarily agree with a point of view this is saying, but whatever, I'll just wait for the next joke to come along you yeah, know? yeah so you mentioned doing a short form improv do you think doing that short form helped you when you later did improv boy i don't know uh it definitely helped me uh with just the fundamentals of, of performance you know how to cheat out to the audience how to um how to tighten jokes as much as you can how you know also how the rhythm of a scene should go and how to make an audience laugh what an audience likes hearing the actual style of improv, I think, is, you know, I wouldn't want to do now. I think it's very um, cheap uh, and I much before long form. But I think it helped It helps you just in the way any kind of performance does. It helps you learn how to speak jokes instead of just write jokes. Yeah. That, yeah, it makes sense. Did, did you... Uh... I also also say, sorry, not to interrupt you, but I also... It also, I think any comedian has to... In their uh, in their life has to get over um, hackness. Like when you first start mm. making jokes, you naturally make a lot of unfunny jokes, um, and and you think they're funny, and you have to do a lot of comedy in order to realize like what's hack, what's old and tired. Um, and I think that's that definitely helped me get over um, hack stuff. That's interesting because like, were you still? Was there a point when you were doing? hack stuff and you knew it was hack like when you're doing it and like you didn't know how to get out of that uh i definitely started reaching points where i was like i do this joke every time we do this game Mm -hmm. we always make this particular joke whenever we do this why are we it's so boring and so i would stop doing it i started trying to find like stuff that would make me laugh more it would be funnier to me and so i guess i i it's actually no i don't think i couldn't do it i think the evolution of a comic is when they get tired of cheap and lazy things and they start finding out what they enjoy and that's when they begin finding their voice. Mm. I think everybody has to go through the desert of hackiness first before they um, can can wander the jungles of their own voice. Yeah. Great so, metaphor. Great so, metaphor. And, and you think that doing the short form in, in high school helps helped you uh, like inch forward through that? Definitely. I think yeah. so. Yeah, any kind of, you know, doing any comedy for the first, I don't know, seven to eight years, ten years is is wandering through that for a while. Yeah. Uh, when you went to college, did you know what you wanted to do? 
I, uh, I intended to be in politics at some point. I, I double majored in political science and sociology. Um, I intended to go to law school and then end up uh, in some sort of Jed Bartlett, West Wing style fantasy <laughs> where I would change the world. Um, were, you, were you a big West Wing fan? Huge West Wing yeah. fan, yeah. Uh, I wasn't as, I mean, when Sorkin left, the show kind of went downhill mm-hmm. after that, but um, but no, I love that show. And I think that's, uh, I think people who are uh, into politics and like, uh, I think people who are smart uh, but not good at math um, <laughs> tend to go to law school uh, very, like, because it's the kind of the only option they see, and that ends up being a huge mistake. Um, but I was one of those people. Well, uh, so why why do you think it was a mistake? Uh, because I don't actually like practicing law. I didn't. Mm. Uh, I, I you know I didn't. I as I practiced law, I hated it more and more, and I should have known that. I didn't go into law school with the intention of practicing law. I didn't really know what it would be like to practice law, and I started law uh, law practice not really caring that much about how practicing law was or how good I would be at it. So I think that was the kind of thing where I just was not paying attention to myself. Mm. But again, a lot of people who are smart and uh, not good at math tend to follow that path because it just seems like the least resistance. Oh, it's a good job waiting for you at the end of law school. And I like to argue. That's basically what a law, right. law, uh, lawyer does. And I also like listening to politics and I'm up on politics and law is kind of adjacent to politics. It's what you think. It's not true, but it's what you think. Mm-hmm. And so you end up getting there. In order to actually get into politics, you have to be basically very rich. And that's the kind of thing they don't tell you until it's too late. Yeah, I guess because you, you do have to, unless you're trying not to be like, if you're not going to be like a senator, you can kind of, if you're not going to be like the elected official, you can kind of not be rich probably, right? Yeah, but even then it helps to be uh, knowing someone rich. Right. I think politics right now is... It's a game mostly played by the wealthy and their uh, and their supporters. Uh, their, sorry, the people they support. So, yeah, I'm very cynical about the very pessimistic about politics as it's practiced today. But uh, it, it definitely, in my own experience, was what success in politics. You either have to be lucky or you have to be tied into somebody, which almost certainly means financially. Right, right. I mean, and some would argue that's success in this world today. Sure, you could. Argue, yeah, you yeah. could definitely argue that. Yeah, I mean, I think where the world is trending towards uh such deep inequality and the the, and the power of, of the wealthy is, yeah. is as unparalleled as it's been since the late 19th century so yeah i would also agree with that and i think specifically i think uh, comedy is very much like a, a a wealthy person's game oh that's interesting because uh it's we think it's stuff like job down while you're practicing in the nights well there's that there's that and it's mm-hmm. stuff like you know ucb there's a lot to a lot of yeah <coughs> with yeah with stuff like ucb there's a lot of like um Money you have to pay if you want to be like on a team eventually. Mm-hmm, yeah, and then once you have the team, there's a lot of dues you have to pay. And totally, no, it's very expensive to be. Uh, yeah, I, our our profession is a very uh, expensive one to play. That's very true. Yeah, yeah, which is interesting because then, like you know, some people just aren't represented, uh, or just some people just don't have a chance. Yeah, you either. Yeah, that's very true. You either have to be so talented innately that your uh, comedy just bursts fourth on day one mm-hmm. um or else yeah you have to kind of go through the farm system to to at least know the people who can give you opportunities and that really requires being in a scene and that takes money yeah. it takes money and it takes uh it takes uh labor that could otherwise go to a job which right. also costs money yeah it's a very yeah but i mean but you're right also in the same way that anything now is easier if you have money than if you don't it's true. i don't think it's unique to comedy right I, yeah i agree too yeah. 
so when you were doing law school and stuff, were you, were you still doing comedy things? Yeah, I went to law school in Georgetown Law uh, in D.C., which at the time has still does has a Washington Improv Theater, which is a great uh, improv scene there. Um, a lot of people I went to D.C. with now are in New York and now are professional comedy writers. Uh, Josh Patton, Zach Phillips, Natasha Rothwell, Rory Scovel, huge list of, uh, of, of great, uh, funny people there. And I just did improv with them uh, in the scene while I was in law school. Mm-hmm. I was sort of improv and, and just comedy in general as being my side uh, thing that I would just do to, to blow steam off from whatever my job was. I never thought my job would be comedy. So was it for, so for for most of their time doing improv before you got like a job let's say it was always considered this is a hobby this is not a profession that I Yeah. Will. Interesting. Yeah. What do you, when do you think that changed when you got a job? No, uh I think when I moved to New York to practice law I started doing um uh UCB. I started taking okay. classes there and uh I eventually ended up uh pretty quickly on a on a Herald team which is terrible. I got, I got, we got cut very quickly. Um, but I marched through the, the program pretty quickly. And then I was also put on a mod team. I started writing things for McSweeney. I started getting accepted there. I got to a point where I was doing everything. I was reaching as much success as I could in common without quitting my law firm job. And at the same time, uh, people that I had come to classes with, my class basically uh, in comedy, was beginning to get jobs um, in professional writing. And that's when I began thinking like, well, I could probably do it if they can do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to say they couldn't do it, but I, I felt like we were all part of a great scene. We're all very funny. We helped each other. And I thought, well, if they can, if, if they are able to get comedy writing jobs, I also have a shot at comedy writing jobs. And that's right. kind of what made me think I can do this full time. And so how long were you, were you practicing law before you, before you stopped? About four years. Oh, wow. And then I quit my law firm. I went part-time my law firm job so I, so I could commit to pursuing a, a comedy job. And I got very lucky um, in that uh, one of the people on my Herald team, my first Herald team, Reynard at UCB, uh, was Hallie Hagland. At the time, she was a receptionist at The Daily Show, but over time, through her sheer talent, uh, became a writer on the show. We had kept in touch. We were friends, um, and and she recommended me for a writing job when it became available. So um, thanks to her, I got the opportunity to write to the, to apply for The Daily Show, and I got the job. Mm. Um, so like anything in this business, I have her to thank. I happen right. to know her. She is now a showrunner for Wyatt's and X, uh, uh, HBO show. Oh yeah. Um, she's so, uh, very, very talented. So funny. And I'm, and I, you know, this business is who, you know, it's, it's, it's who you, uh, perform with and who you like and who you write with and whose comedy you find inspiring and interesting. And, and that's who you recommend for jobs. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I get a lot of, uh, people, um, emailing me or, or you know, trying to say like, oh, I had some connection with you because we went to college together or <laughs> I did this and that. Can you like think of me for a job? And these people don't understand that I have like a host of people right. who, whose comedy I've done and who I perform with and who I love and I want them to get jobs. They think that when I say, you know, comedy, comedy is, a, is a profession of who knows who. I don't mean it's like, I happen to have your phone number on my phone. It's I've seen you perform. Right. I've worked with you. I'm excited to to see your comedy and to say and to vouch for your comedy. Not just I happen to know you. Right. So I think that's something that, you know, I just want to make clear when I say comedy is a who's who's business. It is like we were saying earlier. You have to be in the scene, perform with as many people as you can, and get known around the scene as someone who's funny. People talk about, like, networking. And I don't understand, like, what that means, like, in a comedy world because it's like – 
people are gonna no one's gonna recommend you for a job just because you're talking to them you know what i mean no man it means exactly what what you do anyway like you yeah. just do a lot of shows you and just don't be an asshole and then you're, you're yeah. not an asshole yeah you just you're you people you get to be known around the scene as like a funny person who's not a prick mm-hmm. and then but that means like you have to perform with people you have to do shows you have to do workshops you have to do classes which yeah costs money and time but you have to get your name out in the scene and not like yeah exactly not as a guy who's going around shaking hands and saying like here's my card right as someone whose people when they think about it, they think like oh man i remember her sketch show she put up or i remember his online video or their twitter is so funny anything like that that's the kind of networking that you do you build that reputation up by your material and your and also being known as not someone who's who is a complete prima donna mm-hmm. um that's what I, is networking is not it's not anything that you wouldn't do naturally as a comedian anyway right you know? there's a social element to it but as a comedian you kind of have to be social it's going to be you know not being socialist is a difficult puts you in a in a, in a hole in any profession mm-hmm. you know what what advice would you give for people who say aren't performers? They they don't do improv or stand up. Maybe they're just writers. You got to get your writing out in front of a live audience yeah. as much as possible, no matter what. Even if you're not performing it, if you want to write for comedy, that means you want. Unless you're talking about writing like prose essays, which almost nobody does when they see comedy writing, then you are basically saying I want to write for performance. So if you don't want to perform it, that's fine. But you got to get somebody performing it, and you got to do it in front of a live audience as much as possible. The only way you're going to find out if you're funny or not is is when the bullets are live and an audience that you don't know is standing there laughing or not laughing at the jokes you wrote. Um, so if you are not a performer, that's fine. But you got to find opportunities where you can get your material up, whether that's sketch crams, which I think are I don't know if they still happen anymore, but they're usually the UCB or Magnet or Pit does uh, sort of open mics for sketches. Uh, that's not sketch cram. I'm sorry, that's a different name. Sketch cram is a different thing. I'm sorry. Um, or you know, uh, you know, the, the very, you know, worst case scenario, having readings where you where you meet with people and you just have people read out your lines. Right. But you know, it's you don't have to be a performer, but you have to find some way to get your stuff performed. That's the only way you can you can learn how to write for for an audience. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, going back to when you were a lawyer, how would you balance uh, your job with with doing comedy at night? Uh, I didn't sleep. I just, yeah, uh, yeah. I would be like, I would be, I work ten a.m. to ten p.m. at the law firm. I'd go do a comedy show or a class, uh, and then like one a.m. I'd go back to the firm and do some more work until like three. Then I'd go back home and sleep and be back by nine a.m. It'd be it was it was miserable. It was a very difficult uh, uh, three or four years, but I just liked comedy so much and i just found such joy in it that it was worth a sleep to me i don't think it was being sustainable but yeah you know your early 20s are a great time to your mid-20s are, are a great time to um to work yourself uh to the bone yeah and you have to if you want to if you want to succeed in any profession you know what did uh what did like your lawyer friends think about about this they were very supportive actually yeah. i think a lot of uh a lot of lawyers drop out uh, especially out of big law firms i worked at a i practiced at a big law firm and they usually they have a ninety percent uh, shedding rate anyway, so there was always the expectation you'll probably almost everybody probably leaves. Um, but when I told partners that they were all very supportive. They, every every law partner also has some ambition they put aside to be a partner. <laughs> so they all you know when they heard that I'd rather do this than practice law, they all encouraged me. Interesting. Um, I talked to I, I still hang out with a few of them every now and then. They're all they're all very supportive. They're all like they're, lawyers are great people. I think they I think if you're not a if you don't really want to practice law, uh, your life can be very, very miserable. And I think that right. they recognize that. And so when I express an interest in not practicing law anymore because I love something else more, they were all very encouraging about mm-hmm. it. 
I, it's a weird, a weird thing. Is, like, I feel like a lot of comedians come from uh, law school. I do do yeah. law stuff. Why, why, why do you think that is? Again, because I bet these comedians were tended to be smart people who were yeah. risk averse. <laughs> and law is just this very attractive, shining uh, uh, beacon uh, that seems to pr- pr- offer a um, fairly glamorous job. It's performing opportunities on, in court and it lets you... Um, have arguments all day. The the mythos of being a lawyer is very attractive to someone who doesn't like doing math. Uh, <laughs> the actual practice of it is very is just drudgery. It's a lot of like uh, attention to detail, type A kind of work. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of people who have a personality and are excited and have that kind of comedic instinct very quickly realize that and shift uh, to try to practice uh, comedy. Did you did you learn anything from law school or being a lawyer that you kind of use today in writing? <coughs> Um, uh, yeah, I think that just the, uh, uh, the logic of, of the law is similar to the logic of comedy. There's a mm-hmm. lot of that same element of, you know, isolate the thing that you want to point out and then, you know, express it and, and, um, and do it in a way that makes sure that you're as clear as possible. And working under a deadline is also very helpful to, uh, teaches you that in comedy, and the general uh, how to, especially with late night political shows, like how to thread an argument across a segment, I think is also very useful. And I think uh, I use my my law school skills a lot. I hope so. I certainly it would be a huge waste of money if I wasn't using some <laughs> element. Of it. Uh, so UCB uh, was it something you immediately liked? I guess you'd already done some improv before in, in Washington. Yeah. Right? But was it, did you take to UCB classes? Oh, completely. Yeah, UCB I think uh, fits me perfectly i think i really like the idea of a uh, i really like having a theory um and ucb i think is the only uh comedy school that has a theory of comedy um which just fits me very well i like having it i like having an easy metric by which i can look and see if something was a success or a failure um so I, I i fit naturally within it. I, I i loved it i still do and uh, game specifically feels like such a very writerly thing. And especially yeah. like UCB Improv feels very uh, writerly, which I appreciate. Yeah, very much so. I know yeah. it's not for everybody. Some people want to have a bit more of a loose character-driven structure like I.O., mm-hmm. which is fine. I, you know, well, whatever, uh, whatever works for you. I do think UCB tends to be, because it's more rigorous and more theoretical, it tends to be more successful more often, which is why I think UCB is right now the dominant school uh, in uh, in comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know uh, if that's changing. I don't know. I know we just had, uh, I think Improv Asylum is now moving to New York. Oh, um, I, I think. Uh, I, I I don't know what the scene on the ground level is, is these days, but to me, UCB was the only school that had that type of, uh, of theoretical rigor for uh, to make it sound very dry, uh, and I loved it. Yeah. So. What was uh, what was sketch like back when you started? Um, I I was on a mod team in 2010. Uh, I was a performer, not a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I don't know if it's any different now. We basically we'd have a show every month, and at the beginning of the month, the writers would meet, um, and any actor who wanted to pitch uh, something, uh, an idea, and they would talk. They would pitch basically each other's ideas out. It'd be a pitch meeting. Um, and then there would be two more writers meetings where they would have drafts and then you would have three actor rehearsals where they would all meet with the writers. I think that the, like any, uh, show, I think who the people were made up an enormous amount of, made a huge impact on the culture of the team. I was on a team called Thunder Gulch, which, uh, 
the first team I was on, the team I was on the longest, which was one of the most fun experiences of my life. I think a lot of, uh, we had a very great culture at Thunder Gulch. And I think we had um, uh, a lot of success uh, writing sketches because we were so fond of each other. Um, I don't know. I assume the mod system is works the same way, but mm-hmm. I think it was, the attempt was to ape uh, sketch comedy right. television shows as much as possible, mm-hmm. which I assume they do. Uh, as as an actor, what would you look for like in in sketches? Um, you mean for my for myself or for the sketch for yourself? Yeah, uh, I hard jokes. I guess I I think a lot of uh, sketch writing is clever without being funny. Mm. Um, and yeah. I think as an actor, you are very aware of that. Maybe more than the writer is initially when you perform it, because you can say like, "None of this is really funny." I get the I get the the overall joke. I get the bit, but I don't like every move is very obvious it's not surprising mm-hmm. even if the moves are interesting there's not hard jokes uh in between um so i think that was the kind of thing that as an actor especially being able to improvise while you're doing rehearsals you can find more hard jokes um and depending on the, the writer is willing to allow yeah. you to improvise that's what i think i think that's one thing a lot of writers forget when they're performing when they're writing for performance is that just having a bit is not enough you also have to have a lot of hard jokes that keep the scene going in the uh, before uh, in the gap between moves being heightened, mm-hmm. um, and I think that is maybe one demerit of like the UCB style is that sometimes you do end up with like okay this is a game and these are the this is the three things that are going to happen and they're all like very obvious but they all make sense but they're all like the, the kind of an obvious choice. I guess so. I don't know if that's a demerit in the system. Uh, as much as it might be with the writer writing, because that's true, that's true. You know, there, there's, uh, yeah. I mean, you can write anything that is technically correct and but is dry, mm-hmm. and I or and and not doesn't have any quality of life to it. So, I don't know if that's a demerit in the UCB idea, but it's definitely a uh, it's definitely the sign of a of a uh, beginning or or untalented sketch writer. They're very much <laughs> they're following rules without adding their own comedic voice to it. I'll put it that way. Right, yeah. It'd be like watching a basketball player who's following all the rules but has no, you know, tension in their muscles, no, you know, no propulsion, no um, no finesse in their game, you know? Mm-hmm. You can be like, well, you're playing basketball. It's not exciting to watch you play basketball, but I don't think that's a failure of basketball. It's true. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, uh, So you got the invitation to submit a packet to The Daily Show. Yes. What, what's your general approach to writing packets? Um, well, uh, you really, uh, especially now I can say this having read a lot of packets, you want to make sure that, first and foremost, you're very funny. You, you'll be amazed at how many packets we've gotten for The Daily Show uh, where writers sort of think they're, uh, or submitters think they're writing a Rachel Maddow monologue. Like, mm. there's not a lot of jokes. There's a lot of, like, very sharply argued well-worded points but it's not funny uh and that's one thing i think a lot of packet writers suffer from is that sense that what what john stewart or what trevor noah or anybody in late night want to hear is my specific arguments for the elimination of the you know hot smoothie uh tariff act no one no one's interested in that john and trevor and and oliver all have their own they have their opinions. They'll give you the opinions. You need to have jokes, and you need to have insights and funny takes on, on the you know the news. Uh, so I knew going to my packet, I was I thought about that. 
Um, and I made sure that I had as many jokes as possible uh, in there. Because mm-hmm. um, ultimately what you were trying to do is you were trying to, we say you're trying to write the joke that the host would tell but wouldn't think of. And that's a way of saying you want to have your voice filter through the voice of the uh, host. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing that, you know, any professional comedy writing, 95% of it is writing for someone else. Right. You have to be good at doing that, but not so much that you don't prove why you belong in a writer's room. Mm-hmm. What perspective do you bring in the writer's room? And you mentioned uh, reading packets, which I assume you do because you're the, the head writer. I was a head writer. Uh, in, in February, I was, uh, I was moved up to producer. So okay. I'm a producer now. Uh, so... For that, you you read packets, right? Yes. Yeah. So what what are the things that what are the major missteps besides say being too right, doing too much of an argument that you see in packets that you get? I'm sorry, say that one more time. I guess what what do you look for in the packets that you receive? Is it the same thing? Like just uh, hard very much, jokes? Yeah, yeah. It's just jokes and uh, and also in in insight that we haven't seen before. I, I uh, insight uh, a thought or a take that is. Uh, Funny and also an original. Uh, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of takes that are um, that are just very first thought, very you know, they're funny, but they're immediately um, done a hundred thousand times on Twitter or uh, or by other late night shows, and so it's just very you're you're looking for the person who can provide a a take that you would not otherwise see. Um, so that and and hard jokes, mm-hmm. you know, we'll take. We love to have both. A lot of times we'll take one, if not the other. Uh, not having either one is 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 a non-starter for us. Mm-hmm. And so this was your your first big writing job. What was that transition like from being like a, I guess being a lawyer to now writing on the Daily Show? It was uh, incredibly stressful. It's to be put in front of uh, so many funny people in a room and expected to perform along with them in a writer's room and to be at their level is terrifying. Um, and you, there's also you know in addition to like the learning curve you have is as any new writer in a system trying to adapt to the tone and the language and the culture of the workplace. But, uh, you know, if you're, you know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, uh, buckle down and, and, and learn it as fast as you can. It's a, it's very much a sink or swim, uh, world. Um, not just in comedy, but I think anywhere. So you have to adapt as quickly as you can mm-hmm. ask for help when you need it. Uh, no one is trying to make you fail. So, you just got to be uh, nimble mentally and be willing to um, quickly figure out what works and what doesn't work in your writing more than ever. You have to figure that out very fast and adapt uh, as as you as you think you need to. Mm-hmm. Did you did you find yourself like adapting quite a bit as you started? Well, I was very lucky that like the Daily Show was my dream job uh, and that I got it. I have been watching Jon Stewart since college, and so I already had an affinity for the voice of the show and kind of already uh, could write to it. At least I like to think so. Um, so I was lucky in that respect. If I had been joining a show where I had not seen it before or did not live in the universe um, of its references, I think I would have had a harder time. Um, I hope I would have been able to adapt to it, but I think I had an easier time just because I was such a big fan of the show. Mm-hmm. And what's it like, like joining like uh, an existing room, like beyond just like the fact that it's your first job, but it's like an existing room that's been around. Yeah, man, it's terrifying. They have all their inside jokes. They yeah. have all their like everybody there is kind of most everybody there is already a character, so to speak. There's you know, there's like the the guy who's always eating the bagels. There's the girl who's <laughs> always done this. There's there's always you know everybody kind of like has a role to play. 
And you were coming in basically asking for not just a seat in the room, but a mental space in everyone's head. Um, and you just have to prove you belong there, uh, which is very intimidating. Uh, and not everybody does it, which is also okay, by the way. I should emphasize it's not a sense of – there's no failure in not fitting into a writer's room. A lot of people have a style of humor or a style of personality that just does not fit with the culture of a particular show. It doesn't mean they're not good. Uh, it just means that they need to find a show that fits them. Uh, but if you, uh, you know, but to, you know, if you can adapt your style enough to fit in the room and, and, and you're worth it, the room fits to you and, and, the uh, and it works out for everybody, mm-hmm. but it's very intimidating. You have to be very, it's funny. Uh, comedy writing is so collaborative that it really requires a lot of social savvy, a lot of emotional intelligence that a lot of comedy writers don't have. And that is, you know, people, I know the standard uh, stereotype of a comedy writer is like a very neurotic uh, guy with a beard who doesn't talk much and just, uh, you know, the kind of 30 Rock style of, of a writer. But that's actually, those are not very successful writers because you need to be able to collaborate with other people. You need to be able to make jokes with them in a room and to be, have an active presence and to speak up and to not be precious with your jokes when someone's, no one laughs at your joke or someone says, can we do it this way? Or I don't like that to be able to roll the punches. So there's a lot of emotional intelligence being a comedy writer uh, requires. And I think that having that puts you already uh, uh, ahead of the, ahead of the game when Mm -hmm. it comes to succeeding in our industry. And that emotional intelligence intelligence is almost as important as being funny. I would completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, you still need to be funny, but being funny and also terrible to work with is not is not a recipe for longevity. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you started writing on the show in, in 2011, right? Yeah. So that was during the uh, the Obama years. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you think you you satirize Barack, someone like Barack Obama? Um. Well, it was hard in that Obama is by his own nature, not hilarious. He's not ripe for satire right. the way that obviously, you know, President Trump is. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to satirize more the the actions and the worldview that he would have. Um, you know, his his occasional, like, aloofness and his indifference to people's passions, I think were, were topics we would make fun of. Mm-hmm. The problem with... with uh, with that era was that the Republican party was so much more cartoonish that it was a lot easier to satirize them than it was Obama. Obama came off a lot of times as the adult in the room. And I don't think that's necessarily, uh, I don't think that's necessarily a partisan thing for me to say. I think you would be, uh, I, I, mean, what I guess what I mean is I don't necessarily think that's just me saying that as a, as a left winger. I think right. that's something that naturally the Republicans, tended to be bigger characters. You had McConnell, you had uh, Boehner, this like weeping man. You had uh, you had all these uh, crazy guys who would say, you know, monstrous things about um, about vaccines and rape. Mm-hmm. You had, you know, Todd Atkins, you had Michelle Bachman, Herman Cain, a lot of like very cartoonish characters you could make fun of. And the Democrats had them too, but because Obama dominated the Democratic Party, right. it was more difficult to satirize him as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, although I think we did, but at the same time, you know, you're ultimately uh, satirizing the things that you find uh, funny or upsetting or disagreeable. Mm-hmm. And with John, that tended to be Republicans and then the Fox News media apparatus much more than Obama. So we, right. those tended to be our targets more. 
people, I guess, I guess right wingers complain that all the satire is, uh, I guess, liberal, liberal based, liberal from liberals. But it's like uh, it's just such an easy target, I guess, the Republican Party and those and those people. I mean, not easy target necessarily, but it's just like these are the. I don't want to say low hanging fruit, but they're like the mm-hmm. obvious choices to make fun of, rather than say, <coughs> you know, very. Uh, <clears throat> no, you're good. A, a very, you know, professor like Obama. Yeah, I would agree, and I think that. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, you definitely have them on the Democratic side. I don't want to suggest that the Democrats are all paragons of reason. You have right. your. Um, you have people who definitely have like glaring character flaws and and character eccentricities that we can make fun of you have you know bernie sanders and warren and you know, hillary clinton has certainly had you know has a huge number of of personality flaws and uh and shadiness um so you know it's not that you don't have that but i think that yeah the, the republicans uh because of obama the republicans did not have somebody who was the forefront of reason the way Obama was. And that kind of focused a lot of attention on, I mean, we talk about the Republican party or the conservative movement. You, you talk a lot more about the non-politicians than you do the politicians. You're talking about Fox news. You're talking about Breitbart. You're talking about, um, you know, talk show radio hosts. It's almost like Beck was pretty big back then. Glenn Beck was huge back then. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny. The, that movement is not led by the political apparatus that, that, uh, that, uh, dog finds itself being wagged by the tail a lot more often mm-hmm. and so uh so you're around for the the 2012 election yeah how, how does the show feel feel different in an election i'm sure 2016 felt different in many different ways but how did like 2012 feel different from say 2011 or 2013 well the primary difference was our hosts were different uh trevor was there. oh it was 2013 i guess right yeah 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 Tw- trevor came over in 2015 no that's what i'm saying but so i'm saying for 2012 how is it different from say 2013 into 2011 Oh, how was twenty twelve different from twenty thirteen? Like just like how was that election like being in an election year rather than just being oh, a normal? I'm sorry, year? I hear you. Okay, sorry. You're saying how is different? How is an election year different from a non election year? Yeah, but then I didn't want to. Then I didn't want to talk about twenty sixteen because that year is completely different. From I got you. Reasons, I see so, what you mean. Yeah. Um, well, an election year. Well, actually, up until the Trump era, I would have said that an election year is much more hectic um, than a non election year because the news comes at you much faster. Twenty twelve was much more uh, busy. Uh, than 2013 was, um, and 2014 being a midterm was slightly busier. 2015 was um, less so, but in the Trump era, all that's changed. Like right. every every news cycle is is as hectic as the most hectic one in 2012. So mm-hmm. uh, I think he, I think Trump has, has wiped out uh, all the rules of of uh, of news cycle uh, that that existed before him. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it like when you heard that uh, John was leaving the show? Uh, it was upsetting. It was very sad. He, I think, in a lot of ways, late night, uh, we're all children of John Stewart, um, with the exception of maybe one or two of the late night shows that are not political focused. All the politically focused shows are all children of him. Um, so you know, he is a um, a major star in the firmament of comedy. And so when we heard he was leaving, not just that, but he's also the best boss I've ever had. He's uh, was such a wonderful, wonderful uh, person, both as a mentor and as a colleague. Uh, so to lose him was was you know felt like a catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Um, I was you know I was I drank a lot that night. Yeah. So yeah, it was very uh, it was very it was very sad news. But I get it. You know he was he had done it for fifteen years. Mm-hmm. The good thing about John is that he never wanted to stick around past his welcome, and he 
felt in 2015 that he had uh, he just had done as much as the Daily Show as he uh, as he wanted to do, and that he wanted to give a chance for his successor to have the great news cycles of the campaign to sort of to take a launching pad off of. Uh, I mean, to his credit, the guy is so wonderful. He he wanted just the, the best for Trevor, and I. Right. Um, uh, it's his, 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 uh, we owe like so much to him just in, as in, in comedy, just as, as a mentor, as, as someone who taught us how to work and how to be in comedy. What were the, the challenges in writing his last few shows? They were, you know, I mean, working through all the depression was one, um, also just making sure that it was funny and not just, uh, you know, full of sad remembrances. We wanted to make sure that. Uh, he went out with the same uh, style and and joy that he had during the time. I remember the next to last episode of The Daily Show we did under him was a... The whole segment was about the difference The Daily Show has made in politics since he came along. And the whole bit was that not one single thing right, had been yeah. affected. And I thought that was just what a perfect... What a perfect uh, um, way to, for John to go. You mm-hmm. know, very modest, very... Um, satirical, very um, self-aware, mm-hmm. uh, and also very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that a lot about him. And what do you think about the? I guess what, the, what people say that like, um, I guess the you know because John Stewart very famously I think said like this is not a, a news show, this is a comedy show. We're just doing comedy. We're not trying to like do anything more than that. Right. What do you think about people who like come up against that who disagree? I don't know. I mean. I don't want someone to get their news from The Daily Show. Well, yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. like I, I, The Daily Show benefits from having informed viewers, not from people who are unaware of what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I also don't want people. We are. We are not a comedy shows are not journalistic enterprises. We're not. And I say that because I have so much respect for journalism. We are. We are not structured to report news, to investigate leads, to uh, confirm sources, to cultivate them and to find things out we're just we just comment on the same news that everybody gets mm-hmm. um so i think it would be disingenuous and and insulting to journalism for us to act like we have anything to do with it all we want to do is is comment to the news of the day and make jokes about it mm-hmm. um and i think that's what trevor wants to do and that's certainly what how i see our job is mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a disservice to journalism to pretend that we're doing anything like what they do mm-hmm. uh and so then trevor noah got the the job yeah uh, and you got promoted to head writer, right? Yes, how, that was how, his how, first head writer. How did that come about? Um, the well, it was our head writer was leaving with John, um, not with John, but uh, alongside John, our head writer decided to to pursue other opportunities, and they were looking for a head writer. I, I put my name in the hat, um, and I, I got lucky that I got uh, promoted. Um, I don't know what they saw in me. I'd like to think that they thought I was just the perfect candidate for everything, but I, I don't know. I, I felt very lucky that I. Um, got to be uh, with Trevor in this beginning because I think Trevor is, I would say Trevor is probably the, um, maybe the best comic of our generation now, of our up and coming generation. I think he's so funny and so insightful and so um, smart and uh, with with such a nice perspective on today's news. And I feel very lucky that I got to be his first head writer and I get to be, especially in the Trump era with him. Well, what was it like uh, relaunching the show with Trevor? I'm sure you had to change a lot of things. Every, the, diff, the difficult part about that was we had to change it while we were doing shows. We were we had six weeks of preparation before from the time John's last show uh, ended and the you know eleven o'clock on Trevor's first show. So it was a 
it, it, in a lot of respects, it was like trying to change a plane or build a plane while flying the plane. We had to like, you know, we couldn't change too much with the tinker with things while Trevor himself was getting used to the, to the apparatus. Trevor came in almost by himself and he basically was sitting in a car that John Stewart had designed for John Stewart. So he had to figure out as he's driving, maybe the car is a better metaphor, as he's driving how to, you know, adjust the headlights, uh, the, sorry, the rearview mirror and how to fix the seat and what the radio stations are. And that took an enormous amount of work. Um, you know, in some respects, we're still doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a testament to his extreme talent that the show did not immediately collapse um, under the weight of all that uh, all that change. It's it's interesting with like late night shows. I feel like they're all like that. They all take time to like find their voice and to find like to get going. Yeah, man. I mean, it's, it's so difficult to to as a host. You have to find an audience. You know, your particular style has to resonate with people, and you just have to find the time for those people to come to you. Mm-hmm. And and also difficult for the Daily Show because you know not all of John Stewart's audience was going to be Trevor Noah's audience. I mean, I take right. time for that audience to shed out and for Trevor Noah's audience to come in. Um, and you know, credit to Comedy Central for for recognizing that and 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 sticking with Trevor and, and saying you're our guy. Um, and our show now is is incredibly successful. And I think that's um, because we had the time to for Trevor to find his own voice. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, it's very difficult now seeing shows. You know, like uh, and I'm you know I'm. Like Michelle Wolf's show, and I, I'm not saying oh, this because yeah. I know anything about the people there, but I had a lot of friends who work on Michelle Wolf's show, including Michelle Wolf. But like the way Netflix just did not give her show time to grow, they they basically used her as a guinea pig to figure out if they wanted to even do late night. And yeah. I just think that's you got to you have to let your you have to let an audience find you and to grow an audience. And that show, I think, I mean, that show was great. I it thought. was great. It was very funny. And it was very sharp. She was great. And I, I felt like people. I mean. The thing with Netflix, and I, I've talked about this with some people who've written on that show on this podcast. It's like it's it's hard to do a weekly show on that because it's hard to like find. It's actually hard to like physically find the uh, episodes. Sure, I guess so. But that's also on Netflix. You're the ones who are in charge of marketing. And right, it's on them. Yeah, like, I don't. I mean, that's not for the show to figure out. Their yeah. job is to produce a comedy show that's funny. And I, I don't know. I, I mean, there might be. You know, I again, I'm speaking to this as a complete outsider, so I'm not privy to any. Mm-hmm. Uh, inside information or anything like that, but it feels to me like an example of how you need time to have a show find its voice. Yeah. Uh, as a writer, what were like the big differences in writing for John versus Trevor? Now, I think John. Um, you know, speaking just personally, I think John was much more uh, writerly in that he was um, he was more of a uh, of a writer's uh, comic. He, you know, you could you could write. Um, you could do more wordplay. You could do more um, uh, prose, almost, mm. and John could perform that. Yeah. And I think John also was, you know, in his across a segment. John was much more um, wanted to make an argument. He wanted to have a point. He wanted to argue the point. He wanted to bring in video clips that would either support his point or to present the opposing argument that he could then uh, challenge. Trevor is uh, much more performative in that he is his he performs jokes much more. There's a lot more range in him being able to do impressions and accents mm, yeah, and yeah. and singing and you know and and there's a lot more range he has in his performance. And Trevor's style is also across the segment is telling a story more than making an argument. He wants to tell his audience what a particular story of the day is, what it means, what the various arguments are, and then. 
end with his thought about what you might not have thought about or what his own perspective is about the situation. Mm. And that is, those are very different writing styles. And not to mention, of course, that his universe of references is much different from Jon Stewart's. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, adapting to all that is, is almost a, you know, it's certainly a 150 degree turn, if not a 180. Uh, that required a lot of challenges for the writing staff, uh, which is not, which is obviously natural. You're basically writing a new show, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it's interesting because I was thinking more of like in the, in the jokes, but then you mentioned the like argument versus story, right. which is like insanely different and like kind of changes like the, almost the DNA of the show in like an interesting, cooler, cool way. But it, it does like make that a completely almost different show. Yeah, it, it, it is a different show. Yeah. I mean, the whole, any late night show is completely dependent upon the host. The show mm-hmm. does not exist outside of the host. And so, you know, switching a host is effectively just a new show. There's no, there's not, there's no, uh, very little of that DNA is, is consistent. Right. Uh, when you were the head writer, how much were you focused on, um, like the, the point of the segment versus like, uh, just having great jokes? Uh, they're both very important. You need to you need to be able to have a reason why you're telling a story. Why are we talking about this and not something else? Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, it has to be funny. So I would say in equal measure, like there's yeah. you can't have one and not the other. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you know you don't mess if if it's a slow news day. There's nothing really to talk about that particular day. You can have sort of like a hodgepodge of stories and that are just kind of thinly connected by a thread. But generally. Especially in this era, a lot of stories are very emotionally uh, powerful, and they require the host to have some thought about what they what they mean or what they think about it. And so, it's, it, it would be I think uh, it would not be the best uh, work to present a major issue uh, and then just make a bunch of jokes without any mm-hmm. larger point or thought behind it. That doesn't necessarily mean we want to, and it never means that we want to be, uh, you know serious and earnest and and uh you know tell the audience like listen up this is you know it's not time for jokes anymore but it just means you gotta have something to say and i'm sure that like the i guess the take of the segment has become more um important as like people have cared i mean people have cared more about specific things more i feel like in the last couple years yeah i think yeah sometimes i think to the detriment of comedy i think there's a lot of uh i think everybody is so uh polarized now in their in their politics which i don't necessarily think is a i don't think it's a bad thing i'm very my you know my politics are very strongly uh, held beliefs but at the same time there is also with that polarization and that intensity of feeling comes a lot less tolerance for jokes that don't skew the way you want them right. to and so we found it's a little difficult for our audiences to appreciate jokes that might hit at you know bernie sanders or or left wing ideas or are not as anti-Trump as they could be, Uh, which is not to say our, you know, I don't like our audiences. I like our audiences. But at the same time, I think just that natural intensity of feeling makes it a little more difficult to do comedy um, because people are less interested in how funny the joke is and more interested in whether they agree with its premise. Right. Which is, it's kind of, is a strange thing that's happening now because people get very, very upset about like late night shows um, doing somewhat innocuous jokes uh, just because they disagree with like the view, I guess. Yeah, I've seen like especially. I think this is fomented a lot by um, by blogger culture, mm-hmm. which is you know, in all the recaps and the analyses and think pieces, are much less interested in what the jokes were and much more interested in what the point is. Um, not to mention, there's also a huge financial incentive uh, in in the blogosphere, and I should say I should say blog. I should say really more like in TV and film criticism. There's a huge financial incentive because of the internet to write. Uh, 
controversial, very outrageous uh, headlines themselves. So they are trying to heighten contradictions and, and sharpen disputes. Um, so the way they will, I remember we actually had like a, we had a segment, I think a few weeks ago where we were talking about some, uh, we were talking about the Brett Kavanaugh thing, the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation. And this is actually even like before the, uh, the sexual, uh, harassment allegations blew up the entire hearing. This is before when it looked like he was going to sail through pretty easily, we were just discussing it, and Trevor at one point said something like, you know, now if you oppose uh, Kavanaugh and, and don't want him on the Supreme Court, it may seem like all hope is lost. But, and then we all went on and had a joke. And then some, one of the uh, websites ran a headline that said, Trevor Noah on Kavanaugh's confirmation, all hope is lost. And it made it sound like Trevor was out there like screaming about the Kavanaugh confirmation when the exact opposite was what had happened. Like he, yeah. was about to, he, was on, he was on his way to make a joke about it. Not even taking that position, saying if you're if you oppose it, right. and but that's the incentive the media has, the the film and TV criticism media has to to they want people clicking on those headlines. Mm-hmm. So they also they also sharpen uh, this polarization, to, you know, to extent that you know even if we're not uh, indulging in that polarization, we end up looking like we do. Right. Trevor's had a lot of people tell him. You know, when he goes and he performs all over the United States on weekends. Um, and he has had people come up to him and say, man, before I saw you, I thought you were an awful, you know, like left wing stereotype. But no, you're actually very thoughtful and you think things through like you're not shouting all the time. And he's like, yeah, because because you don't watch the show. You read like the headlines on the show. And if you do that, then just watch the show and you'll mm-hmm. see. That's all you can ask for anybody to do is don't read about the show. Just watch the show and get a sense of what the host thinks. Right. right. Any late night show, you know, it's much better than. Than the headlines, which really have their own axe to grind, their own their own incentives to follow. Mm-hmm. That's really more. That's a very lengthy diatribe about how I how I don't like our uh, our TV film criticism media. No, no, it makes yeah. sense though. Yeah, uh, can you walk me through like how an average segment comes together, like an average like headline piece? Yeah, we usually uh, we meet in the morning, everybody, the writing staff, and, and Trevor and the producers, um, and we talk about what the day, what the story of the day should be. Um, which we hope is going to be the story of the day at the end of the day. Sometimes it's not. Um, a lot of times now it's not. But then we'll talk about what we think the story is going to be. Once we figure that out, we'll uh, we'll go to a smaller meeting where it's um, the executive producers and the head writer and myself and Trevor. And we will bring in uh, the writers that we want on a specific segment. And we'll talk through the beats and specific points and jokes that we want in that segment. And usually jokes will be whatever we've joked about in the morning meeting. Um, and then once the writers have that outline, uh, they'll go and write a first draft. Um, the head writer will take that first draft. They'll punch it up. Um, we'll have a rehearsal and then we'll, uh, go into a rewrite room and, uh, with, with just the executive producers and me and the head writer and and the writers and Trevor. And we'll, at that point, we'll just go through word for word and just punch it all up. Uh, and then we do the show. Well, that rewriting process seems like very interesting, like. This is very intense, maybe. Oh, very much so. Yeah. yeah, it's very. You know, you're called upon as a comedy writer to be, to be constantly funny as much as you can all day. That's mm-hmm. why you know we have a lot of writers because you know any one day someone might not be on the top of their game, and so you want to make sure that there's a lot of uh, um, diffusion of perspective so that people can like rise and and and, and take slack. It's very hectic. It's a it's a you know late night writing on a daily show is um, is very much a, a volume business. You're just constantly trying to get a show up by the end of the day and then the next day it starts all over again. Mm-hmm. Um, 
What, what's like the latest you've thrown out an act and then had to write a new one because of like a breaking news story? It hasn't happened recently, by which I mean the last few months, actually. Trump has kind of slowed down a little bit on mm-hmm. his uh, changing everything. Uh, I, uh, boy, every day blurs up so much. I think there was a time <laughs> in the summer where Trump was going to do something. Uh, he made some... Uh, he made some major... Uh, he had some rally, like 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock, where he said something so crazy that it became like the story of the day. I forget what it was. This is actually kind of like a theme usually where he says something at some rally or, mm-hmm. or he had a press conference or something. And it, we eventually had to like throw half the act out and put that in there, um, which always makes for a worse show when you have to, you have to like slam something. And we usually try now to not, we just to acknowledge that it happened and to, to see if we can hold for another day. Cause usually Trump takes over the news the next day. So, you, you know, it's just so much, uh, he generates so much material that generally nothing has more a shelf life of like more than 12 hours. Right. There are a lot of times where like he'll say something at five o'clock that night and we'll say like, okay, we'll talk about it tomorrow night. But by 11 PM that next night, it's like, what was that? Who that? I don't even remember what he did then. Yeah. So he's, that's a blessing and a curse of him actually. So what was it like uh, writing an episode after the, the 2016 election? Uh, it was, it was difficult uh, again because the audience, you know, I think Trump's election was very much a, even for his supporters, it was a shock. Yeah. It, it, no one anticipated it. Um, certainly not President Trump. He definitely didn't see it coming. Um, so I think it was difficult trying to figure out how you can be funny in those moments. There's always moments uh, where there's something tragic or shocking or you know, not something that does not give itself over to comedy. And you've got to figure out how can you be funny while saying it and still respecting the fact that the event is not necessarily funny. I think Trevor does a good job of, you know, when he wants to talk about something that's not funny, he has a, he has a good job of talking about it and then like peppering jokes in. He has a very natural rhythm talking to audiences. Um, and, and I trust him when he's like, we need to talk about it this way today. We can't do this joke. We got to like do this. Help me find a joke here for this and joke here for this. And I'll have some thoughts in between this. Um, and that's kind of what you got to do. I think for the election night itself and the night afterwards, not to mention again, of course, our audiences tend to be more liberal. And so they're not happy about, they were never not in mood to laugh mm-hmm. um, on election night or the night after, yeah. uh, which is, you know, I, I, I like that our show does not yield to that. It's rare that Trevor's like, I don't want to make jokes about this. Very, very rare. Um, and I like that. I like the fact that Trevor is a very, uh, is not very, the good thing about Trevor is being from, I think, especially one of the great things about him is being from South Africa. He's, He's had Donald Trumps in his life before. His president before this new one in South Africa was a Donald Trump. Yeah. And so he is... Uh, that's, that's Zuma, right? Zuma, yeah. Yeah, I'm familiar with Zuma. He's basically, crazy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he was basically like a Donald Trump before Donald Trump, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think, you know, Trevor has... Trevor doesn't... Because of that, Trevor is not shocked and outraged every day um, about what new you know, uh, things Trump has said, what new indelicacies he has said, what new, you know, violation of norms he has committed. And I think that makes us all a bit more uh, willing to laugh and having fun with the situation than mm-hmm. I think we would be otherwise if it was uh, someone else who was raised in American culture and was equally like a gog at what Trump is doing. Right. Um, so I, it's, it, it's, it's, it's good that I, I'm glad that I, that I, I write for him uh, in this era. It makes it easier to be funny with stuff that I think I naturally would not think is hilarious. 
in general, how do you think satire in like late night shows have handled Trump? Uh, I mean, I think we're great. Uh, I think that I think by and large it's been okay. I think Trump is Trump is difficult to satirize. He's so huge. He's he is everything he does. He does at a hundred percent, which makes any element of his character, you know, able to to lampoon in the most cartoonish way. So it's exhausting. And I think that. Yeah, by and large, we've we've done it well. I can't think of, you know, I, I don't watch the late night shows as much as I would like to, partly because we just have so much to do and I, I can't stay up late every night watching all the uh, all our uh, all our sister shows. But, uh, I you know, every time I've seen stuff, I've liked it. I think we're doing it. I think it's difficult to do it. And I think that the, sh- the shows do a good job of pursuing non-Trump stories and, and stuff as much as possible. I think initially it was very easy to spend the entire show on Trump because he was just... It's, it's almost... Uh, I don't know who said this initially, but it was the idea that like there is honest, you know, it's like Trump being elected was like a, being on a street with a fire hydrant exploding and it's just water is blasting yeah. everywhere. And you're like, all you can do is just talk about the fire hydrant. But like we're two years into that fire hydrant being busted. And it's like, well, there's other things going on too. So I think there's more of a, at least on our part, we've been trying to find stories that don't relate just to Trump and what a, you know, what a cartoon he is. Right. Um, and I think that's a challenge for any late night show. And I think sat I mean, I guess it's a question of what do you think satire's job is? Do you think satire's job is to change, you know, the culture or to uh, change people's ideas? Then I think satire, I mean, I don't think that's what satire's purpose mm-hmm. is. And I think if you think that, then satire's done a very bad job, um, especially with respect to Trump's election. Mm-hmm. You had, I think for a better portion of a year, you had almost every late night show taking like just opening fire on Trump daily. And look what happened. He won the election. Like, I don't think satire is, is usefulness is as anything more than just, than just making people laugh at the absurdity of a particular situation. I, I'm very pessimistic about its effect on, on change. And so if you're asking me about that, then no, I don't think any of them are good. If you're asking right. me like, have, have they pointed out Trump's many absurdities and, and picadillos? Yeah, great. We've all done that. I wonder who actually does think that satire changes people's minds or are you supposed to do that? Because I feel like, uh, no, I, I don't know anyone who actually thinks that I think. I don't know. I think a lot of, I mean, I don't, yeah, I, I don't know. I haven't met anybody who, who thinks that. I've met non-comedians who think that, you know, late night comedy is, is, you know, supposed to, you know, have an impact and what you guys do is so important. I've, I mean, I, God knows I've read, Many blogs that right, have attacked right. uh, the late night shows and the Daily Show for not being more, you know, for not doing more to affect change. Mm-hmm. And it's just th- those those are arguments that I, I disagree with the premises of them. So I, right. I you're talking you're talking about uh, something that doesn't exist. So I'm not I don't have anything to to argue with you on that. Right. Uh, what are the hallmarks of a good Daily Show segment to you? I think it's a segment that um, talks about the. Events of the day in a way that takes advantage of Trevor's voice and his perspective as a you know as an outside of America South African third world immigrant, um, and is very very funny. Um, that's I think the hallmark of good things. Something that's mm-hmm. very very funny and that makes uh, exposes people to Trevor's uh, unique insight into American politics. Um, I think we, you know, that's always our goal when we're writing. And I think we, we do that more often than not. And I'm very, you know, I'm happy about it. But I think that uh, any show wants to, any, any any late night show wants to be the 
the goal of it is to present its host's voice in the most pure, uh, funniest way possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you like to be doing next? I don't know. Um, I'm having a really good time now. I think the, uh, you know, I mean, I could I could always see myself working on a, on some other on a scripted show or whatnot. Um, but also right now that you know the the I get a lot of joy uh, being in a room with very funny people talking about uh, about politics, and I and I really enjoy that catharsis. And I I'm very lucky that I'm someone who needs that catharsis and has it. So uh, I don't know. I think right now I'm I'm, I'm pretty happy where I am. Do you, do you ever get sick of writing a comedy about politics? Luckily for me, no. I'm very. Uh-huh. I was always very politically. Uh, uh, I'm a very political junkie. I was always aware and and and. Uh, omnivorous uh so i no i don't really i haven't tired yet of it mm-hmm. um and we also have a lot of opportunities to write politics to write jokes that are not about politics right. segments stuff that even if they are about politics also have their own fun yeah. uh absurdist kind of uh style i'm very you know i i think of the late night hosts outside of trevor i think maybe conan is probably my favorite one mm-hmm. i just love that cerebral absurdist style and i think we get a chance to do that um every now and then uh so it satisfies me yeah yeah, yeah. Conan's got a half hours soon, right? The half yeah, hour soon. I think that's great. I'm very, I, I'm actually the the his head writer went to college with me. We we're on our college improv oh. team together, which is I think is maybe the, I don't know if you can say that about any other uh, show right now where like the the, well I'm not head writer anymore, but there's a time when like the two head writers are both from the same college improv team. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Think that was such a great. Uh, yeah, he but Conan I think is one of the also I think is one of the comic. Uh, stars of our of our era, and mm-hmm. I think that uh, anything that lets him do fewer guests and more comedy bits, I think, is a huge advantage to the to, yeah. uh, to comedy. Yeah. Okay, so we're gonna wrap up uh, with you giving your thoughts on a sketch pitch. Yeah, yeah, throw it at me. Uh, yeah. yeah. So this is it'd be a, it's a barbershop quartet, and uh, three of the people are like normal barbershop quartet people, uh, but the fourth guy is handcuffed to one of them, <laughs> and like so they start doing the song, and in between verses of the song. The fourth guy, like, says, uh, I'm being kidnapped. They're forcing me to sing. <laughs> uh, and, yeah. So that's all I... That's, like, the I, the genesis of the idea. I don't really know much else besides that part. I like that idea. Yeah. I mean, that's a great premise. I think it's really funny. Is I, I guess, like, it's the bit that he... In his solos, he sings that, but he's just as happy as... He, yeah. His, his, his expression doesn't give away. It's just the... It's just like his the lyrics that are very clearly like him uh, pleading oh, for help. Oh, it's interesting. I, I I was I was planning on doing like yeah, he's happy and he's doing that. But I wasn't. I didn't think it'd be like a solo. But that actually is funny to do. Like it's the solo where he's explaining how he's. How he's I doing mean, it could this. just be you know where like every now and then the bass uh, has its own like dip 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 or like that kind oh, of right. thing. Where like and as he's that can be moments where he like gets across like yeah yeah oh, that's fine. You know, I'm being kidnapped. They're taking me prisoner. Like yeah, that yeah. kind of stuff. Uh, that I mean, you could that that I feel like would be that's that's very funny. I like that idea yeah. a lot. To me, the the joy is in watching that guy not break character. Like he's still like making the song great. It's just that right. he's saying this like in uh, the terror. His you know his 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 uh, plea is only coming across in the lyrics, not in his like facial expressions. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, you got to think about where to go from there. But that's a really funny bit, though. I yeah. like that premise a lot. All right, cool. Yeah. Uh, anything you want to plug? Uh, no. The Daily Show, I guess, with Trevor Noah, 11 o'clock yeah. on Comedy Central. We're going to go to Miami. When is this going to come out, you think? Uh, like two weeks from now. We're in Miami uh, all week in two weeks, um, starting Halloween week. Um, and then we have a live show on election mm-hmm. night. So 
So watch those shows. Awesome. Know, and buy all the products that are advertised in our show. I think it's very, <laughs> very important. Support Viacom. Support Viacom, our corporate overlords. <laughs> I greatly appreciate it. All right. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks a lot, man. Appreciate it. Audio podcast. For more information and shows, visit boardwalkaudio.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe now.